Last time we spoke about the conclusion to the Lay Salamao campaign, Operation Postern was unleashed with a bang. The Japanese were taken by complete surprise when the Allies landed in the Lay area. General Nakano frantically withdrew the forces from Salamao over to Lei, having been duped by the Allied deception. Despite their fighting withdrawal, the Japanese not only lost Lei to the surprise attack, but ironically lost Salamao at the same time. It was a race for the Allied divisions to see who would seize both objectives first. As the Allies marched into Salamao, they realized quickly it was so desolated, it probably would not be used as a forward base. But Lei would prove extremely beneficial. Ultimately, General Nakano managed to get 8,000 or so men out of the mayhem, now marching north for salvation. But the Allies were not done yet. This episode is the Huon Peninsula Offensive. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a historic film review of the Oppenheimer film. Also, you can check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is a piece on Tomiyuki Yamashita and how he became the Tiger of Malaya. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Now before we venture back to the boys on Green Hell, there had been some developments in the Solomons. On September the 18th, Admiral Wilkinson brought over the first units of General Barrowclaw's 3rd Division, the 35th and 37th Battalions of the 14th Brigade. They were brought over to Les Gill's Plantation, located at Jorovito North of Barracoma, and then landed without any conflicts. Unbeknownst to them, however, Admiral Sakameki had launched an airstrike of 12,048-0s. Luckily, the Allies tossed an interception in the form of 17 F-4U Corsairs, 6 Hellcats, and 4 P-40s which ran into them just over Baga Island, as Admiral Wilkinson's escort force of 7 destroyers were making their escape. The air battle spread towards the east, where the landing area was, but no shipping was damaged as the Allies claimed to have knocked down 15 enemy aircraft at the cost of just 3 Corsairs. Once he got ashore, Barrowclaw assumed command of the Northern Landing Force and set up his HQ on the eastern coast of Vela La Vela. In response, Wilkinson spread his fighter cover more thinly and scattered his LSTs away from Barracoma's anti-aircraft guns. On September the 25th, a large convoy carrying the 30th Battalion, 14th Brigade and some Marines, and some CB units arrived at Ruravé. They began establishing an advanced Marine base for an upcoming operation against Bungayville. This prompted Sakamaki to launch another airstrike, this time consisting of eight vowels and 40 zeros. Brigadier General James Moore had roughly 20 fighters to cover the convoy, but some of the vowels managed to slip past them. At around 11.13, 
Twelve Hellcats intercepted the enemy, leading to dogfights with Zeros. But two minutes later, the Vals had come out from hiding in front of the sun. The Vals were targeting the IMAC landing site at Ruave, where the 77th Seabees had been clearing the beach area. The Marines had some 40mm guns already set up when the Vals struck. Two bombs hit LST-167, forcing the vessel to beach itself while the rest of the bombs scattered across the beach, killing 32 men and wounding 58. Sakamaku followed this up with another airstrike on October the 1st, consisting of eight falls and a dozen zeros again against Ruerve. The 1st Marine Parachute Battalion was landing at the time. Sakamaki's bombers successfully evaded Allied radar and fighter patrols to hit the LSTs. LST-334 took a hit in a near miss, causing damage, but no casualties. LST-448 was hit twice, leaving her bursting into flames, killing 52 men, with many more wounded. LST-448 was hit again, leading her to sinking while under tow. It was some pretty devastating airstrikes, but it was also to be the last as the Japanese were in the midst of evacuating their troops from New Georgia, and the 26th Air Flotilla was withdrawing from Boone. To the northwest, Fijian commandos had discovered the Hiranu Defense Force was now scattered in an area between Tambala Bay and Marquana Bay. Barrowclaw decided to order Brigadier Leslie Potter's 14th Brigade to take out the enemy over there. Potter planned to take the 35th Battalion and his HQ up the western coast to Matu Soroto Bay, while the 37th Battalion would land at Doveli Cove on the northern coast. They were hoping to trap the Japanese between both forces. On September the 21st, Captain Tsuruya Toshio had just arrived from Boon to take command of the rather disorganized Vela Lavella forces, and he began concentrating at Marquana Bay, establishing a defensive perimeter. Potter's forces successfully landed at the designated points by September the 24th and prepared their advance for the next day. Meanwhile, Admiral Samajima and Kusaka were planning the evacuation of Kolmbangera. To help them out, General Imamura was tossing over Major General Yoshimura Masayoshi's 2nd Shipping Detachment alongside 30 barges. Plans were quickly formed back in early September for Yoshimura to carry out the evacuation in two stages beginning on September the 28th and October the 20th via the Choizo route. Admiral Ijun proposed using the 8 fleet destroyers for both transport and cover. Kuzaka approved the plans when he granted an additional 6 destroyers for Ijun's task taken from the combined fleet, while also arranging for some air cover from Sakamaki over on Choisel. The operation, designated Sego, was mostly complete. Yoshimura assumed command over the barges, designated the 17th Army Sea Battle Unit, while under the command of Samajima. He would have ultimately at his disposal 70 barges. Yoshimura had armed the barges usually with heavy machine guns and trained the crews to expect attacks from American destroyers and PT boats. He also outfitted them with repair tools. One of the largest problems he faced was how to move 70 barges and 9 small naval vedettes to the forward bases while keeping them hidden from enemy aircraft. The NGAF would confirm this problem on September the 20th when 8 corsairs were patrolling and came across some barges. They managed to destroy five out of eight that they had found. Yoshimura recalled, It was an auspicious start to the operation. But he carried on nonetheless. Leaving Buen on September the 23rd, they arrived at Sunbay Head by the 25th, where the 8th Fleet sent a detachment of the Curie 7th to establish a base of operations. 
At this point, Kuzaka flew into Villa to meet with General Sasaki and Admiral Oda, landing in the midst of exploding shells. To prepare for the withdrawal, Sasaki had established three boarding points along Kolombangera, Jack Harbor, Tuki Point, and Hambaro Harbor. At the same time, he tried to conceal his intentions by increasing patrols and firing off the Yokozuka 7th guns against the enemy. Alongside this, he had demolition teams blowing up all the airfield installations, which was mingling with General Barker's artillery. Against them was Admiral Halsey, who held intelligence indicating the Japanese were planning to either reinforce or evacuate Kolombangara. Halsey sent Admiral Merrill's Task Force 39 to move up the slot while Admiral Wilkinson's destroyers would swing south up Vela Gulf, with the objective of catching the enemy between them. Halsey referred to this as a mousetrap. On September the 25th, however, both the USS Columbia and Cleveland reported sighting torpedo wakes, indicating a possible submarine force prompting Halsey to pull back the cruisers before the mousetrap was sprung. Thus, this left only Wilkinson's destroyers to pounce on the evacuating Japanese. But that's all for the Solomons for today, as we are now going to be jumping back into Green Hell. And so, Selamawa and Lay had fallen. General Adichie was now determined to hold the Finisterre Range, the Ramu Valley, and the Juan Peninsula. He ordered the Nikai Detachment consisting of the 78th Regiment Less One Company and a battalion of the 26th Field Artillery Regiment led by Major General Nikai Masutaro to take up a position at Kai Pit. Masutaro's boys were going to try and help halt the enemy pursuing General Nakano's fleeing 51st Division. To make matters worse, although the original orders were for the fleeing men to carry their weapons, the Japanese progressively began to abandon their equipment as they fled. Rifle ammunition was the first to go, followed by helmets, then rifles. Kitamoto Masamichi ordered his engineers to gather as many of the abandoned rifles as they could and use their files to erase the chrysanthemum insignia off them. For those of you who don't know, the chrysanthemum is the symbol of the emperor. So they were going to literally waste time and resources to mitigate what they thought was a minor disgrace. Men also dropped rice, personal belongings, clothes, whatever they had to in order to survive. The logical thing to do is survive, not to take the time to fall off the symbol of your emperor off of rifles. Major Shintani's 1st Battalion of the 80th Regiment apparently carried all of their weapons across the Sarawag, including four heavy machine guns. Shintani had told his men, The soldier who abandons his arms will be shot to death. And Shintani actually died during the crossing of the Sarawag, but his men carried on his orders. Some of you might already know this, but I am a Dan Carlin fanboy and he said it quite right in his piece about the Pacific War in regards to the Japanese. They did everything to the extreme. You just don't see this same radical behavior from other belligerents of World War II. The Japanese are often mocked for their naivety about believing that their spirit would overcome the material difference during the war. But by hell come high water, they certainly tried. They all marched north via the Markham Valley while General Katagiri's 20th Division was sent to help defend Finchafen. The Japanese had to shuffle their strategic plans at this point. Thus far, they had not regarded the losses of Guadalcanal and Bunagona as irretrievable. Always believing a decisive victory could be attained, 
allowing for their recapture. Now after losing Lay and Salamawa, the Central Solomons and the Aleutians, a brutal realization had dawned on them. With a new thrust into the Central Pacific by the Allies, they now saw their perimeter was overextended and that it needed to be withdrawn a bit. This led to the creation of what became known as the Absolute Zone of National Defense, also called the Absolute Defense Line. Tokyo drew the new perimeter line from western New Guinea through the Carolines to the Marianas, leaving most of the southeast area on the outpost line. The main goal was to build strong fortifications along the perimeter while General Imamura and Admiral Kuzaka held the enemy at bay for as long as possible. General Imamura kept his 38th Division to defend Rabaul and dispatched the 65th Independent Mixed Brigade to Telavu. The 65th were ordered to develop a shipping point there and to maintain its airfield. Back on September the 5th, Imamura had sent Major General Matsuda Iwao to assume command of all the forces at Telavu, which at the time consisted of the 65th Brigade and the 4th Shipping Detachment. Thus together they would be designated the Matsuda Detachment. They were going to defend the coasts of western New Britain. Lieutenant General Sakai Yasuchi's 17th Division were dispatched from Shanghai to rebel to reinforce New Britain, while Lieutenant General Kanda Masatani's 6th Division were sent to Bougainville to defend it at all cost. The 2nd Battalion, 238th Regiment, would defend Gazmata, and the 51st Transport Regiment were deployed at Lorangao in the Admiralties. Now back over with the Allies, when Lay was captured with such ease, this caused General Douglas MacArthur's HQ to revise the cartwheel schedule. Originally it was planned to hit Finshafen, the primary Japanese base for barge traffic. This was supposed to occur around six weeks after the fall of Lay. But like I said, because of Lay's quick capture, combined with some intelligence indicating the Japanese were heavily reinforcing Finshafen and the Ramu Valley, MacArthur decided to order an immediate operation to secure the villages of Kayapit and Dumpu in the Markham and Ramu Valleys to construct airfields for General Kenny. Allied intelligence indicated the number of Japanese defending the immediate area of Finchafen was roughly 350 men, providing MacArthur and his staff some optimism. It would be later discovered General Adichie had 5,000 available men there. On September the 17th, MacArthur ordered Admiral Barbie to begin amphibious attack plans for Finchafen to commence as soon as possible. The Markham and Ramu Valleys were like a giant corridor some 115 miles long, running from southeast and northwest, separating the Huan Peninsula from the rest of New Guinea. From end to end of the river corridor were large mountains rising on the north and south. The valley itself was flat kunai grassland, very suitable for airfields. General Vesey's 7th Division were earmarked to advance along the Markham and Ramu Valleys as far as Dumpu. Dumpu would provide General Kenny with airfields required to isolate the Huan Peninsula. From there, Kenny could hit the Japanese supply convoys moving between Madang, Wewak, and Hansa Bay. Meanwhile, General Wone's 9th Division were given the task of amphibiously assaulting Finchafen before exploiting along the coast to Sio and Sador. Yet before any major operations could be unleashed, there was still work to be done at Ley. General Milford's 5th Division was given the task of cleaning up the Ley area so it could become a major forward base of operations. On September the 22nd, Milford moved his HQ to Ley. The western boundary between the new Ley Fortress and the 7th Division would be a line running north and south through Nadzab. 
The southern boundary would go as far as Nassau Bay. Milford had the 15th, 29th, and 4th Brigades at his disposal. Milford's men immediately set to work, clearing the interior approaches to the town of Ley against any possible Japanese counterattacks, while simultaneously aiding in the pursuit of the fleeing Japanese. The successful evacuation by the Japanese of Salmao and Ley had shocked the Australian commanders despite the fact they had been informed as early as May of intense Japanese patrol activities along the interior trails. In fact, a young Australian officer had earlier reported that the Japanese were surveying interior trails for a possible retreat across the mountains. On September the 8th, they acquired a order of evacuation document leaving no doubt how the Japanese were going to withdraw north. Milford's HQ deduced the line of retreat was going to be from the Malambi River, Bona, Melasapipi, Ilakana, and Ulap. However, this would all prove to be a deception on the part of General Nakano, who changed the direction of the march to the steep trail along the eastern side of the Atzera Range towards Sio. Now going back to the Quadrant Conference held in Quebec City between August 17th and August 24th, the Allies had decided to make some major changes to Operation Cartwheel. The main focus was now shifting to the Central Pacific, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff planned to employ the 1st and 2nd Marine Divisions for the task. For the Southwest and South Pacific areas, this meant the Central Thrust was going to take a bunch of their warships, transport ships, and cargo ships. General Douglas MacArthur was livid at the idea two Marine divisions would basically prevent him from his objective of capturing Rabaul. Thus, in Quebec, he was decided to neutralize Rabaul rather than capture it. MacArthur also brought up the question of invading the southern Philippines, but received no real answer. He feared that even if the idea was approved, it might be handed over to Admiral Nimitz. Thus, to bypass Rabaul, MacArthur's forces would seize Kaving and the Admiralties. MacArthur would also have to neutralize Wewak and liberate the valuable Volgulkop Peninsula along New Guinea's northern coast. Back over in New Guinea, General Nakano's men were continuing their withdrawal with the Australians in hot pursuit. On September the 17th, the 2 and 14th Battalion crossed the Atzera Range to capture Bona. The Japanese 30th Independent Engineer Regiment and the 51st Engineer Regiment were constructing a small bridge across the Busa River using jungle wood. General Nakano had rejoined his HQ with the 2nd Echelon of men, and he had such a rough time marching he had to literally be carried by four soldiers. On September the 18th, the 2 and 24th Battalion had reached Musam and Gawam. The Japanese defending Markham Point had been completely cut off as of September the 14th, receiving no supplies from Ley, nor any information about the fact that Ley and Salamao had fallen into enemy hands. On the night of September the 16th, 100 men of the 2nd Battalion, 238th Regiment, evacuated from Markham Point, reaching towards the coast, trying to get to Salamao or Finchafen. On the 18th, Captain Proctor's company of the 15th Battalion were at Labu, when they saw a group of 30 armed Japanese trying to escape in some folding boats across the Labu Lagoon. His company fired upon them, forcing the Japanese to quickly row away and flee into the jungle. At 5.10 a.m. the next day, the Japanese returned to attack Proctor's company, trying to break out of what had become an encirclement. Three consecutive attacks were made, with the third reaching the edge of Proctor's defensive perimeter when the fighting fell into hand-to-hand -hand combat. The Japanese were driven off after they had 13 deaths, including their commanding officer. 
the rest of the Japanese would disperse into the jungle or die in future mop-up operations. The next day, Bona was taken, and now the 2 and 14th were being held up by a Japanese rearguard on the upper reaches of the Busa River. On September the 20th, Nakano's first echelon finally crossed the Busa River, and by the 22nd, the other three echelons did likewise. In hot pursuit, a platoon of the 224th began to hit the Japanese at Kwapsanak, but Wu's forces ultimately failed to catch the Japanese rearguard. In the end, the Australians prepared to launch a new offensive against the Ramu Valley and Finchafen. The pursuit units were gradually being called back, allowing Nakano's men to reach the northern coast almost unmolested. General Blamey predicted the remnants of the enemy would, quote, not be able to escape the hardship of the mountain tracks. It was believed by many that he would be right about that. The men of Colonel Watanabe's 14th Field Artillery Regiment continued their march going up the range carrying their single mountain gun towards Lumbap and then to Kamen. Kane Yoshihara noted the officers and men, quote, clung onto the rocks with truly formidable spirit. General Nakano would recall, I was deeply stirred by their sense of responsibility but could not overlook their suffering. Nakano ordered the last of the regiment's guns to finally be abandoned. He recalled, The gunners with tears in their eyes bade a formal farewell as they did so. Colonel Watanabe would survive the trek alongside 280 of his men. There was a saying amongst the Japanese armed forces at the time that, quote, Java is heaven, Burma is hell, but you never come back alive from New Guinea. It is said an unknown American officer once referred to New Guinea as a green hell on earth. And as you can imagine, that's where I got the nickname for it. The conditions on New Guinea were so horrible, a veteran of the 32nd Division went on the record to say, If I owned New Guinea and I owned hell, I would live in hell and rent out New Guinea. I think that one's my favorite. General Vesey and Blamey decided the next objective would be Kaipit, as they believed Nakano was retreating through the Markham and Ramu Valleys. They earmarked Captain Gordon King's 2 and 6 independent company to quickly capture the village before the Japanese could get there. On September the 17th, King's company flew over from Port Moresby, landing at Sangan on the western bank of the Liron River. Two platoons from Captain John Chalf's Papuan Infantry Battalion Company also reached the western bank of the Liron River that day coming overland from Chivasing. They would act as a screen ahead of King's men. King's men began their march for Kayapit, and against them would be Major General Nakai Masataro, who had departed from Bogadzim with the 70th Regiment on September the 7th. He had dispatched the 3rd Battalion and the Morisata Company towards Kayapit, with the bulk of his forces advancing towards Nadzab, where he planned to hit its airfield. The Takano Platoon, a reconnaissance unit, were the only ones able to reach Kayapit by September the 19th, just as the Australians were approaching it. King had strict orders given to the men that no movement was to be made on the track to the village itself, as he believed the enemy would be covering such an approach. Instead, the men came through some kunai grass patches, bringing their two-inch motors close to hit the enemy. 
The mortars began to smash the enemy forward positions, sending Japanese fleeing or dying at their posts. The Australians then began to pin down the defenders using grenades and rushing their positions. Japanese treetop snipers unleashed pure hell upon them, but soon the Australians began firing upon the tree lines and village huts where they were hiding. The storming of the village was intense and fast, seeing 30 dead Japanese and the rest fleeing for their lives. King had lost three men dead, with seven wounded for the assault. The Australians quickly went to work, creating a defensive perimeter, placing booby traps anywhere that they could. Basie's decision to swiftly hit the village had paid off big time. The following morning, 300 men led by Major Yunikata Tsunio arrived to Kaya Pit under the belief that it was still in Japanese hands. Just before dawn on September the 20th, the Australian commandos saw the incoming Japanese column and immediately opened fire upon them. The Japanese erupted into pure chaos as men of all ranks bunched up and milled about in confusion. Some of the men could be heard screaming in Japanese, We are Japanese! Let us through! Other Japanese soon realized Capit was indeed in Australian hands. Thousands of rounds were fired back at the Australians, but their positions were too well concealed. King watched as the confused enemy did exactly what he taught his men not to do, shooting at shadows, wasting ammunition, and firing high. In all that enormous activity of firing, nobody got hit, nobody got hurt at all. The situation came as a shock to King as well, because the sheer volume of return fire indicated it was a considerably large force. Some of King's men wanted to advance, but he advised caution. Platoon leader Watson waited for King's signal for when he could advance, and King recalled, Each second seeming like a minute, as the Japanese gathered in the half-light. Watson was standing up there, looking back to me, just waiting. When King dropped his arm finally, Watson blew his whistle and the men all charged. Lieutenant Bob Scott of Section 7 recalled, We killed over a hundred Japanese in the first 100 yards. Scott's group had cut down Yonikura and his command group in the first wave of Australian fire. Lieutenant Bob Balderstone of Section 9 sent his men into the right flank as Lieutenant Jack Ellsworthy of Section 8 took up the left flank. The Australians had seized the moment and inflicted hellish pain on the Japanese. Watson's platoon lost eight men killed, 14 wounded. King tossed another platoon through the right flank to grab Mission Hill, which dominated the battlefield. As the men had advanced, they drove off Japanese in their path and they would seize the deserted hill. Once it was captured, the Australians had a bird's eye view of the area that allowed them to better direct their forces. Seeing the hill secured, Watson judged the time was ripe to continue the advance, so he ordered Balderstone and Ellsworthy's sections forward. Balderstone was hiding behind a coconut palm when a bullet nicked his right arm, prompting him to scream out, Who did that? It was not a serious wound, but he was fired up, and he yelled to his men to surge forward. Balderstone personally tackled a Japanese machine gunner afterwards. After clearing some machine gun positions below Mission Hill, the enemy was becoming completely surrounded. The casualties had become so severe, the Japanese began to rout in disorder towards Antaragon and Narawampum. 
It was an incredible victory for King. They buried 214 Japanese and believed many more were dying or wounded. General Vesey arrived around midday and he walked over the corpse-strewn battlefield to Mission Hill stating, My God, my God, my God. The scale of the carnage and the size of the force against a single Australian company was incredible. Gordon King was resting a wounded leg on some shady spot atop a hill when Vesey approached him. King struggled to get to his feet and Vesey said, No, no, sit down. But King stood up nonetheless to talk. Vesey told him to get the first available aircraft out before adding, Gordon, I promise that you'll never be left out on a limb like this again. Basie then returned to his plane, which headed back down the Markham Valley. Some months later, Basie would tell King, We were lucky. We were very lucky. To which King replied, Well, if you're inferring that what we did was luck, I don't agree with you, sir. Because I think we weren't lucky, we were just bloody good. For this incredible victory, King had lost 14 men dead, 23 wounded. It was something out of a Rambo film. Brigadier Doherty's 21st Brigade were beginning to land at Capit on September the 21st. King's victory allowed Vesey to bring a fresh brigade into position to keep the advance going against Markham and Ramu Valleys. The Yonakura Battalion had nearly been wiped out to a man. Thus, General Nakai ordered the 1st Battalion to rescue the battered force. Most of the Mursada company were unscathed as they did not engage in the Battle of Kaya Pit. Alongside them were some stragglers left behind and around 40 men who had managed to escape the pure carnage. Aided by the rescue battalion, they had managed to withdraw back towards Marawasa by September the 24th. A volunteer unit was formed under Captain Morisada named the Sato Unit which consisted of around 80 men from the 10th Company, 78th Regiment. They would work as a special infiltration unit who would begin raiding operations. Back over at Ley, Generals Blamey, Herring, and Wooten began to plan their offensive against Finschaffen. Towards midnight on the 17th, Herring arrived to Ley by PT boat for a meeting with Wooten. Wooten had warned Blamey and Herring that he might be required to carry out an attack on Finschaffen at short notice leading Wooten to order Brigadier Windair to look at Finschaffen on the map because it might be of interest to him soon. Before Herring's arrival, plans were already being formed. At 9 a.m. on the 18th, Windair and his staff attended a 9th Division conference at the HQ on Bunga River. There, Herring outlined a plan for the capture of the Finschaffen, Landmark, Bay, Dreger Harbor area with a quick swoop, which would gain control over the eastern coast of the Juan Peninsula, and thereby the Vitaz Strait. Windir's 20th Brigade would join General Heavey's 532nd Engineer Boat and Shore Regiment and Admiral Barbie's landing craft armada to perform an amphibious assault against Scarlet Beach. Scarlet Beach was on the southern part of the Song River, just due north of Finchaffen, where it was believed the Japanese would not be expecting a landing. From there, it was possible they would be able to cut off the Japanese supply lines. Woon and Blamey would toss up an additional brigade, but the available crafts, about four destroyer transports, 15 LCIs, and three LSTs were only capable of lifting a single brigade at a time. 
In the end, the decision was made after the landings that the 22nd Battalion would advance round the south coast of the Huan Peninsula to try and deceive the Japanese as to where the real direction of the threat was coming from. Windir planned to hit the beachhead with two battalions, the 2 and 17th on the right and the 2 and 13th on the left. Once the beachhead was secured, the 2 and 15th would advance south along the main road towards Vinchafen. Additionally, an expedition would be launched from G Beach on the night of September the 21st to also land at Scarlet Beach the following morning. To support the landings, a large air armada of both American and Australian planes would protect the convoy during the daylight hours. General Kenny would be tossing airstrikes against Cape Gloucester with Liberators, while RAF hit Gazmata and Kitty Hawks and Bostons and Mitchells against Finchafen. All of the key airfields and supply points between Wewak and Finchafen would get absolutely smashed. Barbie's destroyers likewise would bombard Finchafen as well. To meet the boys coming to the beaches was Major General Yamada Aizo, commanding the 1st Shipping Detachment, a naval force based around the 85th Naval Garrison. Around 1,200 men were stationed at Finchafen. Many of them, however, were barge operators and mechanics. But there were some combat units. Major Shigeru Tashiro's 2nd Battalion, 238th Regiment, had companies 7 and 8 at Finchafen, with the 5th Company at Tami Islands. Additionally, there was the bulk of the 80th Regiment coming over from Medang via the coastal road that would arrive just in time to meet the Australian offensive. In the end, Yamada's combat strength would be roughly 4,000 men strong. On September the 10th, after the Allies landed at Leia Nadzab, General Katagiri marched the rest of his forces from Medang to Finchafen in a grueling advance along the coast. The first elements of his 79th Regiment assembled at Gali by September the 21st. Because of all of this, Medang was left pretty much undefended. The 239th Regiment was chosen to reinforce the base, departing Wewak on October the 3rd. Over in Finchafen, Yamada began deploying the bulk of his forces at Logaweng, with four companies holding the Mongi River's mouth and two mixed companies of about 50 engineers and 300 naval personnel holding the Bumi River. To the north, Yamada could only deploy the 9th Company of the 80th Regiment towards the Song River to secure Saddleburg. Looking at it all on paper, it seemed the Australians were set to face very little resistance. On the afternoon of September the 21st, Barbie's force of 8 LCMs and 15 LCVs departed Leigh for Scarlet Beach. Windir's landing plan called for two companies of the 2 and 17th Battalion to go land on the right beach while two companies from the 2 and 13th would land on the left. While the rest of the brigade landed, the right companies would hit North Hill and the left companies would hit Art Point. Barbie's convoy arrived off Scarlet Beach at 4.45 a.m. and the barges began to lower. After an 11-minute bombardment by destroyers Perkins, Drayton, Smith, Lamson, and Flusser, the barges began to speed over to the shore. However, due to the darkness of the night, the whole wave landed a bit further south than intended, and as a result, the four assaulting companies were landed not only on the wrong beaches, but they also got mixed over with other groups. This caused a fit of confusion as a platoon of the 2 and 13th drew fire from some machine gun positions near the mouth of the Song River. They quickly engaged the enemy with grenades and small arms gradually silencing the two enemy posts. When the 2 and 17th Battalion began to become organized in the area, the platoon moved further south to rejoin its company. This all resulted in a failure to secure Scarlet Beach. 
forcing the second wave to veer further left and beach near Sikikov under heavy enemy fire. But the LCIs of the second and third waves responded to the heavy fire with their 20mm guns, sending the Japanese fleeing. After that, Scarlet Beach was secured. Funny enough, if it was not for the misstep landing further south, the operation would have seen many more casualties amongst the Australians, as the Japanese machine guns proved to be sighted in a deadly position to hit Scarlet Beach. As the remaining waves disembarked, Lieutenant Gibbs' platoon of the 217th advanced inland, and they were soon met by some machine gun nests. Within half an hour of combat, the platoon killed seven Japanese and sent the rest fleeing for their lives. Other platoons of the 2 and 17th began to advance up the Song River, fighting only limited skirmishes. The 2 and 13th, meanwhile, were sending two companies towards Siki Cove, where they were to clear a few pillboxes, taking some Japanese prisoners in the process. Windera's forces then launched an attack against Katika. And immediately saying that <laughs> makes me think of the show Vikings. A company led by Lieutenant Pike passed through Katika at 7.45 a.m., heading for some high ground beyond. There, Pike's men ran into some very strong resistance. Another platoon led by Lieutenant Birmingham ran into a Japanese position who tossed a ton of well-directed grenades, killing three of his men and wounding seven. Pike's platoon stormed some huts, seeing the Japanese begin an encirclement maneuver against him. Luckily, the encirclement was thwarted with the help of another platoon led by Lieutenant Cribb. Companies of the 2 and 17th and 2 and 13th were led by Pike and Cribb respectively, and both found themselves close against another. Cribb informed Pike he would launch a bombardment upon the enemy holding some high grounds, allowing Pike's men to make a hook maneuver to hit the enemy even harder. Under the cover of 15 3-inch motors, they hit the Japanese, ultimately taking the village at the cost of quite a lot of men. While Scarlet Beach's defensive perimeter was being consolidated, the 2 and 13th advanced south towards Heldsback and Tarako as Barbie's destroyers were attacked by an airstrike. 20 bombers, 10 torpedo bombers, and 40 fighters had come over from Rabaul to hit the landing beach. Three American fighter squadrons were waiting to intercept them, successfully shooting down 10 bombers and 29 fighters, while losing just three lightnings. Likewise, the destroyer's anti-aircraft fire managed to shoot down another nine torpedo bombers without receiving any significant hits back. Scarlet Beach was now in Allied hands. 5,300 troops, 180 vehicles, 32 guns, and 180 tons of supplies had been landed successfully. All of this cost 20 dead Australians, 65 wounded, and 9 men missing. For the Americans, it was 8 engineers killed, with 42 wounded. And yet again, the rapid pace of the Allies had caught the Japanese completely off guard, upsetting their plans to reinforce Vinschaffen. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. And honestly, if you want to do me a huge favor, please watch the episode on the Ramry Island Massacre myth. And leave a comment saying that you came from the Pacific War Week by Week podcast. And please, if you have a chance, check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel if you want to hear more exclusive podcasts. 
The landing at Scarlet Beach was a large success. The Japanese had planned to reinforce Vinschaffen with 5,000 troops, but now they had been caught completely off guard and would only have a fraction of the troops they wanted to support the area. In New Guinea, when it rains, it pours. <laughs>